Today's message was brought to you by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. Pastor Jason Swanson is our senior pastor here at RBC, and this message was recorded during our regular Sunday morning service times. Pastor Jason is currently in a series he's calling the Walk Through the Book of Acts, Jesus at Work. Well, today, Pastor Jason continues in his study of the Book of Acts. We're in part 16 of this walk in a sermon that Jason has entitled, No Other Name. Let's join Jason now in his message. Well, good morning, everyone. I am Pastor Jason, and I'm the senior pastor here at Rancho Baptist Church, and we are excited that you are here with us this morning, and we are continuing our walk through the book of Acts. And today we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 12, and I, I thought about calling this the first persecution. Because that is what we're going to see. We're going to see the first persecution that happens in, in Christ's church, even though Christ's church is, is only but a couple weeks old. And yet, I don't believe that that is the main focus of, of what this text is. And so, what I've entitled the, the sermon is No Other Name. And yet, I thought it might be good for us as a f- point of reference to consider this idea of persecution. And whether or not you believe that Christ's church should expect persecution or not. Or if it's something that we just get out of for whatever reason. Or if perhaps, maybe, we should expect persecution and and, and what is the reason why we're not being persecuted? You know, in Papua New Guinea, when, when we started our initial evangelistic Bible teaching, we saw persecution come pretty quick, and as the church continued to meet, and as God's Word was taught, we continued to see persecution happen. At first, we saw persecution in, in, in different ways, such, such as a small little boy getting upset because his, his chair in the back of the church was occupied by bigger boys, and so he threw a whole bunch of rocks at the church, and everybody had to duck for cover. And we actually had to send, my coworker had to go on a search and rescue mission and, and find this little boy and, and, and grab him. Things escalated and got much worse as, as the teaching went on and, and a guy got so upset with what was being taught in the church that he came to the church with, with kind of like a torch that he had made. And he was, his idea was to take the torch and just light the thatch roof on fire. But interestingly enough, as, as he took the torch, and put it up on the, on the thatch that the torch immediately was extinguished. And so the church didn't catch on fire. I, I wish to say that was the last, but, but actually we had other things happening. One time I was preaching in, a, in, in, in our village sorceress, Habian. He got so upset that he, that he came up with his machete and was knocking down all these trees out front and then tried to walk inside, looked like he was going to do damage to somebody with his machete inside the church. Another time he came with a bow and arrow. All over the fact that he was upset about what was being taught from God's Word. And then as things progressed and his his wives started coming to church, he actually started forbidding them from coming to church. And then he got to the point to where he wanted to steal his number seven wife. Yes, he, he, he wanted to work his way up to ten wives. And he was after number seven and she was a young a young woman who was probably 15, 16, 17. And he'd kind of wait 
by the church so that maybe he could nab her as, as, as she'd come. Well, she ended up running away from our village and, and escaped basically with nothing. And so she sent word saying that she wanted to get the Bible, that she could read it when she was away trying to hide out from Sabian. And we didn't have the Bible in, in total like you and I have now. We now have a translation of the New Testament, or they do. Instead, we had small little booklets. And she also hadn't brought all of her clothes, and she was hoping for like a, another skirt, I think maybe a bed sheet and some other things. And so she asked the, the church if we would gather some things together then bring them to her. When, when, when Sabien, this village sorcerer, heard about this, he, he went to the middle of the village and, and gave this great big talk saying that anybody who tried to help her, that he'd go after them. And so we met as a church and we prayed about this. And, and we decided, okay, anyone who would like to give something to Wendy, why don't you bring it to my house? And I'll put it in a big bag. And if no one else will carry this to her, then I will carry this to her. And after, I think, two weeks, we had a pretty big bag full of stuff. And, and I took off up the airstrip to take off on this five-hour trip to hand-deliver these things to Wendy. And as I got to the top of the airstrip, her brother was there. Jonah. <laughs> and he said, you don't have to take this. She's my sister and the Lord will protect me. And so he took that. And praise the Lord, he didn't meet Sabian on the trail. And, and, and I say all that not to dramatize something, but to let all of us know that, you know what, persecution can be good. In fact, it is good oftentimes if it's done in the right way, for the right cause, for the name of Christ. And what we're going to see today is, is that persecution didn't stop God from working. And actually what it, what it does is it, it has a neat effect on God's children. Look at what, what Jesus says about persecution. In Mark 13, 9 to 11. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. And then look at what he says in verse 11. When they arrest you, not if, when they arrest you, this will happen. Persecution will come. In fact, if persecution doesn't come, I think that's when we should be asking, well, why isn't it coming? When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. I believe the reason why we don't see so much persecution even here in America today is because we have it so easy and because we become complacent. Dr. John MacArthur, he says it like this. Satan has largely destroyed the spiritual effectiveness of the church without having to kill the individual believers in it. In fact, letting believers live self-centered, complacent, indolent, worldly lives is more effective in keeping people from being attracted to the Christian faith than killing them. Martyrs are respected for the strength of their character. Compromisers are despised. Man, May us, we as a body, look at 
what we're going to see here in, in Acts chapter 4 and learn our lesson. Learn how to stand up under adversity and actually honor God in the midst of a trying time like this and see it as coming from a good God and recognize that He can use that not only in our lives personally, but in our, our lives as a, as a body. So, so turn with me to Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. Which reads, As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, And Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by this name. This man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Let me pray again. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would write your word upon our hearts, that you would allow your Holy Spirit to illuminate your word and make it clear to us, Lord, that we would leave here with a better understanding of your great name and the salvation that comes through believing in your great name. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. So in these verses, what we're going to see is we're going to see the magnitude of Jesus' name. Just how great Jesus' name is. And and what we're going to see first is the opposition to the name in verses 1 to 3. Then we're going to see the salvation in His name, verse 4. The inquisition of His name, verses 5 to 7. And finally, the declaration of His name, verses 8 to 12. But first, let's... Look at this, the opposition. In particular, persecuted because of the name. Verse 1, As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them. So first, as is the case quite often in in Luke, as he's giving us a picture of of what's happening, or or what happened, being the historian, he always usually pins everything with a a focal point of how, how we start where we are, what, what's going on, when it is, and, and who's involved. And here we see that the, the when and the who. That, that really what, what we see is, okay, this is happening just where they were. And we have to remember back to a couple weeks back when we saw the healing of this lame beggar, that this started when? This started about 3 p.m. And now Peter has been preaching for three hours. And he's in the same place where he was before, where, where this 
man that was, was healed is, is holding on to him. But notice who's involved. So it's a little bit of a nuance change as we see as they were speaking. It doesn't say as he was speaking. The, the shift has now come to where it's not just Peter preaching, but it's, it's they. So at, at the minimum, it's Peter and John, and they are the ones preaching. But it could be much more than that. It could be that some of these 3,000 plus believers that had been gathering around the teaching and then meeting in homes, that maybe some of them were actually being involved in what was going on. In either case, it's, it's not limited to just one guy preaching. And, and as a result, we, we see this opposition come. And the first three groups that we see mentioned are, are first the priests. And the priests, they, they come from the Levitical line. So they're all related to, to Levi. And there's basically two different groups of priests that, that, that he could have been referring to. He could have been talking about to priests that live kind of outside the, the precinct of Jerusalem and that they would serve on a rotational basis. So they would come in order to serve as priest, but they'd only do that maybe once, twice, or three times in their entire lifetime. And they'd come for maybe two or three weeks and they'd serve there and then they'd go back. And so those were the guys that weren't as influential as the second group of priests. The second group of priests are ones that actually live in that area. And, and, and when it talks about them, we're talking about really specific families. And we're talking about powerful men. And, and we're talking about a priestly caste that, that was in charge of all the Jewish places of worship. That they would perform the, the religious rites and duties on behalf of others each day. And I believe this is who Luke is talking about. That it's these kinds of priests that would also include the high priest. But he doesn't just talk about, it's not just the priests that, that have come in opposition to Peter and to, to Christ's church here, but the captain of the temple guard. This is the commander responsible for the temple that was in Jerusalem. He's the captain of the temple. You could look at him as like the head of the police force. Although Rome was very kind to all the all the nations that they conquered and they, and they allowed them to have their religious freedom, it wasn't like an open-ended freedom. They could just do whatever they want. Rome still kept an eye on them. And the way they did that was to appoint a guard that would, would be kind of like the captain of the police force. He wasn't Roman. He was Jewish. But he was a man that had lots of power. In fact, he was only second to the high priest as far as the temple goes. And he was in charge of, of like a, a command of police officers and soldiers. And it, were, it was these soldiers who came and no doubt took Jesus. So that's who we're talking about. And then finally, he says, okay, and it was the Sadducees. And, and the Sadducees, it comes from the Hebrew word for righteousness, which is the way they viewed themselves as well as everybody else viewed them. And they were one of four distinct groups in Judaism at this time. So, so you had the Pharisees, you had the Essenes, you had the Zealots, and then you had these guys, the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, they were the, the most powerful and the most influential. And the reason why they were so powerful and influential was because of who they knew and how, really how much money that they had. They worked hand in hand with Rome. And so for them, what was really important was loyalty to the Roman government. They wanted to, to maintain the status quo that they had already acquired. And they were also from a wealthy class and they had association with the wealthy class. So they recognized that in order for them to keep their wealth and to basically keep themselves happy, they would have to be in good, right standing with the Roman government. 
But there was also something about them, about their theology that held them, man, in an opposing stand towards what the apostles were preaching. And that is the fact that really all that they looked at and understood or even adhered to in the Old Testament was the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Old Testament and throughout those books, interestingly enough, there, there's not a whole lot of mention of the resurrection or even angels and, and spiritual beings like that. And so what they did not believe in was the resurrection. And what did Peter keep preaching? He kept preaching the resurrection. And so no doubt this was something that, that they weren't too excited about. On, on top of this, many believe that, that they believe that the messianic period had already begun when, with, with the Maccabeans. And so they weren't looking for a Messiah. They didn't care about the Messiah because they thought it was already a done deal. And so on many aspects, that you, you already see the tension. John eleven forty seven to, to 48 gives us a, a pretty good little picture on exactly how the Sadducees thought and the Pharisees, the leaders of the Jewish people at this time as far as their religious side goes. Look at this. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So they, they were all concerned about themselves and, and their place. They had it good and they didn't want anything to jeopardize that. And what was jeopardizing that? This teaching. And so what did they do? We, we see they came up to them. That, that's not a, a very good depiction of, of what the Greek actually conveys. The, the Greek has a lot more to it. It's not just the idea they just randomly came up to them. It, it has a time element to it. it. It has the connotation of suddenness. That this came about unexpectedly and boom, all of a sudden this group was there. And, and it wasn't just that they came with no set intention. They came up with a hostile intention of confrontation. So it was like all of a sudden, boom, there's this big group here. And, and, and what were they? Were they excited? Why did they come? Well, we'll look at verse 2. They were being, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So we see why they were so upset. They were upset because of two things. The teaching and the proclamation. And this idea of, of being disturbed, it's actually deeper than that. It's to be greatly annoyed as a result of someone's provocative activity. That this would just be festering in them. That the couple weeks that the church has now been born, probably no doubt they're seeing them. And they're seeing them what? They're seeing them grow and grow and grow. And their influence is getting bigger and bigger. And so no doubt, just as they did with Jesus, they're thinking, how can we stop this? What needs to happen? And that's why they felt like they needed to come up and, and they needed to do something. And what was the thing that was really agitating them? Well, the fact, on the one hand, that they were even teaching. Because who were these guys? They're just fishermen. <laughs> they're not guys that had gone through... The, the rabbi schools and, and, and the way that you train up the religious leaders. Very much the same way that they were upset with Jesus. And they just couldn't figure him out. Why? Because he spoke as a man with authority and they couldn't understand where that authority came from. And now in the same aspect, that's why they're so upset that these, hey, 
You shouldn't be the ones teaching. We should be the ones teaching. Who do you think you are standing up and giving this kind of message? So in reality, what's going on is, is there's a power struggle over the influence of the Jewish people. Because the leaders had taught and treated Jesus as though he were what? He were not, he was not only a blasphemer, but he was everything that he said that he wasn't. And now what is the apostle Peter proclaiming? No doubt every day. Where? At the temple? Right in front of them? He's proclaiming the complete opposite. This man was no blasphemer. In fact, this man is the, is the Messiah. This man is God. On, on top of all of that, he, he also proclaims that, that he is resurrected from the dead. He is the resurrection. So you got those two strikes that are just no doubt annoying them to kingdom come and making them more and more upset with the apostles. And so as a result, look at what they do in verse 3. And they laid hands on them and, and put them in jail until the next day for it was already evening. This, this doesn't mean they beat them up, that they oppressed them. Literally, all it means is that they just put their hands on them and put them in jail. If they would have had it their way, they, they wouldn't have put them in jail. They would have went right to a trial. But, but it was against the Jewish custom to actually do a trial at night even though they circumvented that when it came to Jesus and they, and they did a trial by night. And so what do they do? They, they, they go ahead and they decide, okay, we're going to put them in jail. This shouldn't be a surprise to us that, that persecution would come and hard times would come. Jesus said it like this in John fifteen eighteen: If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. And then the Apostle Paul, likewise, he instructs young Timothy and all believers in 2 Timothy 3.12 that the Christian life, it will not be a comfortable one. It's going to be uncomfortable. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But you know what's really cool? Is that even though the Sadducees, they could arrest the apostles, they could hold them back, they could limit them to a certain extent, You know what they can't hold back, what they cannot contain, what they cannot limit? The gospel and the work that God is doing. As we see that that even in spite of this, which is, I mean, if we just stopped here, this would be pretty depressing. But but look at what we see next in in, in verse 4. As we see the salvation that comes to those who are believing in the name, believing in His name. But many of those who had heard the message believed and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Now as I kept looking at this for the last week and a little bit before that, I I was kind of confused with, with the chronology of these verses. Doesn't it seem strange to you as well? well why does this verse come here? What I mean, it would have fit better. Verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, many of those who had heard the message believed and the number of men came to be up 5,000. The priests and the captain, the temple guard came up to them, right? But it doesn't come like that. And, and this is inspired. So, so could it be that what, what God's trying to communicate to you and to I, that possibly Peter and John didn't even know the result of Peter's second sermon? 
Could it be that they were to the point to where they were going to repent, they were going to trust Christ, and then these guys came in and took him and put him in jail, and they're in jail, and while they're in jail, all of this happens. As if to communicate to us that we are the servants, he is the king. That we are the sowers, he is the one that does the reaping. And we need to trust him. Notice here too how how it says what? It says that 5,000. But the depiction of the 5,000 is different than before it talked about 3,000 souls. This time it says that that the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Well, what does that mean? There's commentators that go all over the place on what this means. And if you look at the Greek, there's basically two words you can use for, for man. You can use the, the general term, which is mankind, which includes women and men. And, it, and it's just the general term. It's everyone's included in that. It's not an, inclu- an exclusive term. It's inclusive. Everybody's included. That's not the, the word used here for men. There's another word that you can use that is very exclusive exclusive, and only is referring to men, as in a male versus a female, and that's what word is used here. So we could conclude that, yes, 5,000 men were saved that day, but no doubt there were women and children there as well. So perhaps the number, as many commentators agree with, the number could be more than 10,000 up to 15,000, 20,000 were saved. Add that with 3,000 that, that we already had from the first sermon. We're, we're not talking about a small little group. We're talking about a huge group that's meeting where? Right on the temple grounds. That these guys are going by every day and noticing. But notice, even though Peter and John may not know what's going on, God knows exactly what's going on. And he's going to place them in exactly the right spot so that they can have an audience that, that unless you were basically put on trial, you'd never be able to get this audience. And, and, and that audience is going to be the next point. That audience gives them the inquisition where they ask by what name. And that's seen in verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. So we, three, we see three new Groups. So, so we started off with the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees. And now we see three more added to, it's like the number of people that are getting more and more opposed to the, to the gospel and to Christ's church is just growing and growing and growing. And the three groups we see here are the rulers, the elders, and the scribes. Rulers are those that were in charge of the synagogue. The elders are, are, are those that were the chief tribal and family heads. And then the the final group are the scribes. They were the specialists in the law of Moses. And they were the ones who studied and interpreted the law. And what's important about these three groups is together they form what is known as the Sanhedrin, which is very much like the Supreme Court that we have here. They were the most influential ones in, in, in all of Judaism. They ran everything. And no doubt... what. Listen now how it says that they were gathered together in Jerusalem. Why is that significant? Why is that important? Because it was most likely these particular men, the Sanhedrin, that pronounced the guilty judgment upon Christ. It, it, it was no doubt these guys that had sentenced him to death. 
And could it be at this time, as this is going on, that Peter and John, they don't have to put one and one together too quickly to come to the conclusion, oh my, we are in trouble. We are walking down the same road that, that our that our Lord walked down, and He ended up on a cross. Are we going to end up on a cross today? I, I would think that that's what they were thinking. And if that wasn't bad enough, look at who He, he mentions next. It's not just groups that we're meeting, but individuals. And the individuals that, that he mentions are, are very impressive and powerful men. Look at verse 6. And Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. It says Annas the high priest was there, but he isn't even the one that was functioning as the high priest at this time. He, he'd already been deposed by, by the Roman government. So that they could stop somebody from being high priest and then allow another one to come in, which is what they had done. And who they allowed to come in and take over for Annas happened to be his son-in-law, who married Annas's daughter. And so even though it says that it's Annas, he wasn't actually the one functioning as the high priest, but because he was the one that had just been the high priest for nearly ten years, that's who everybody thought of as the one that wielded all the power. And if a big decision was going to be happening, and if a big trial was going on, he was going to be there. And just the fact that he is there shows you how significant this is. It ramps things up higher and higher. And Caiaphas was there. And both of them were the ones that conspired in the trial of Christ. And Christ appeared before both of them. Some believe that John and Alexander, the other names mentioned, that those are actually sons of Annas. But it's difficult to know all, all, all that we know are their names. What is important is the significance of these guys. So having given us the details as to who was there, now Luke goes on and, and he tells us exactly what transpires. As the Inquisition goes on, verse, verse 7. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire by what power or in what name have you done this? So the way that the Sanhedrin would meet would they would, they, there'd be 71 of them, 70 plus the high priest. They met in like a semicircle. And, and they put scribes on each of the corners that would then write down everything that was transpiring before them. Everything that was going on. And then whoever the offender was, the accused, he'd stand in the middle of that semicircle group. No doubt being very, very intimidated. And then it, it says what by... By what power or in what name have you done this? Again, we've seen so much emphasis placed on on Christ's name. Why? Because it depicts Him not only as a person, but it also shows the authority of who that person is. Which is what they want to get at. Why? Because basically what they're saying is, okay, we have a right one for you to stand before us and for us to hold a trial because we're supposed to be the ones protecting what's going on here as far as our Jewish faith goes. So it's right for us to have this trial. Number two, the fact that you're doing these things not by our authority makes us wonder, well, whose authority are you doing this by? Because we didn't sanction you to do this. So what is going on? And perhaps maybe they were pointing back to earlier with this sermon where Peter took the, the focus off of himself and his piety and his power or John's and, and put everything onto Christ. But notice what we don't see in this verse. We, we don't see Peter questioning them or John. 
We don't see this. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're going to put us in jail for healing a man? You don't see any of that. You don't see them say, hey, we have rights. You just don't see that. Why? Because they recognize that God is totally in control and God is the one doing this. And so what are they doing? They're submitting to him. But even though they're totally submissive, they're not quiet. It doesn't stop here. Instead, they they give a declaration. And that's the the final thing that that we'll see. Look at verses 8 to 9. This is awesome. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has has been made well, stop there. I mean, this is bold. These guys at any point could just say, (laughs) you're done. And yet, what does he first go after? He, he actually doesn't go right into the name right away. First says, well, if we're on trial for healing a sick man, which who would put somebody on trial for healing a paralyzed guy? He, he's honestly just telling them, this is insane. But he doesn't even stay there very long because before you know it, he, he gets right onto his declaration, which is seen in, in, in verse 10. Let it be known to all of you To you, you Sanhedrin that are here before me, but not only to you, but to our entire nation. That by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. Let it be known literally means it must be known to all of you. It's a command. You know what's interesting is... The other sermons that Peter preaches, and I think we could consider this kind of like a sermonette. This would be like 2B. (laughs) It's the next day. But what we don't see is he's not going to call them to repentance. At least not explicitly, but I I believe that you can see it in, in, in some of the way that he's approaching them now. He's not giving them the option. He's telling them, you need to know, literally understand, that what you did was wrong. This is the Messiah. He's not preaching anymore to a great big crowd of of Jewish people who are involved but not totally involved. He's preaching to the leaders of their faith. The movers and the shakers, the ones that were in charge of everything. And he's calling them to what? To recognize that that they do need to repent. And yet, look at the, the courage that Peter has. As he goes on, And he says this in in, in verse 11. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. So he's still speaking to them with lots of respect. And yet as he speaks to them, he's totally making them culpable. Hey, you guys are the builders. You guys are, are in, in essence, the foundation of our Jewish faith. It's ironic, really, what he's saying here, because then what he said, you guys are the builders, but you know what? The chief cornerstone you missed. And just as he did in his other sermons, he takes them back to God's word. Really, what he's quoting here, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, that's from Psalm 118.22. Do you remember before how I said that, man, as we look at at these sermons by Peter, we see three things that that, that are involved in good preaching. One, we have it here, the Holy Spirit. 
being controlled by the Holy Spirit, being filled by the Holy Spirit. That, that's how Peter can do this. And isn't that encouraging? To know that when we get in this kind of situation, that we can trust that God, through the Holy Spirit indwelling us, will give us, much like I, I started off with in Mark 13, give us the words to say. Because if I ask you all, how many of you are scared when you preach the gospel to somebody? I'm sure not one of you would not raise your hand. Myself included. scares me to death. And yet the reality is the Holy Spirit is the one that helps. The Holy Spirit is the one that gives us the words. And that's what exactly is happening now. So he's relying on the Holy Spirit. It's done in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's centered on Christ. And what's the foundation? The foundation is God's Word. As he again points back to the Old Testament and and quotes Psalm. What's interesting is Jesus had done the same exact thing. Not only had Jesus pointed back to the Old Testament, but he had actually quoted the same psalm. In Luke 20, 17, it says this, But Jesus looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Okay, stay with me on this one. Could it possibly be that, that who Jesus is speaking to in Luke 20, 17, that possibly some of the Sanhedrin was there and that he quoted that, speaking of himself, before they're going to reject him, before he's going to be crucified. And now Peter's what? He's pointing them right back to this passage. And could it be that maybe they are grasping the significance of what Peter is saying in a whole new way? On top of that is, is the understanding of what this word cornerstone means. It's, it's the first stone that's set in the construction of a masonry foundation. It's the first stone that they, they, they build everything off of that stone. So if that stone is spot on, the house is spot on, and it's solid and secure. If that stone is off just a little bit, then the whole house, its foundation is off. Again, alluding to Christ. And in, and in case this just isn't clear enough yet, they still haven't got exactly what he's saying. He, he, he goes and he, and he makes it abundantly clear. That there is only one way, and that there's only one chief cornerstone, and they aren't it. That they actually crucified the one that was it. Look at verse 12. As he says this. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation is a term that, that you and I use a lot. But in, but in these days of the apostles, the, the Jewish people wouldn't have thought in terms of salvation the way that you and I do. They would have thought of victory, freedom, and justice, deliverance from the Romans. That's why they thought that's what Jesus was going to do. But what Peter's trying to do is he's trying to make it clear that what they really needed was a, a different kind of deliverance. What they needed was deliverance from sin. And these ones in particular because they were so righteous in their own eyes. And what Peter is pointing them to is one that can give them a deliverance from sin that that, that not only is from the punishment of sin and the power of sin, but ultimately from the presence of sin. And and he's he's really trying to make this clear to them. And, And look at how he ends it. 
I believe this is again pointing to the fact that he's calling them to repentance. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. He's including himself and them. Saying, hey, I'm one of you. I'm Jewish too. And when, when I quote these verses, I'm, I'm thinking of all of the Old Testament scriptures that you and I believe in. Even if you only believe in the Pentateuch, it still points to this one. It still points to the chief cornerstone being one, being the Messiah. And that is who you need to believe in. And notice the exclusiveness of his claim. That there is only one name, not a way. One name, one way. This goes so contrary to what our world is telling us today, right? Oh, come on, Jason. You're not going to tell me that the people in Papua New Guinea, you told them there was only one way to heaven. Leave them alone. They're fine the way that they are. No, they're not. They were on their way to hell because they did not know about this one way, that he is the one way. And so many people today, oh no, there's many ways to heaven. And and I'll close with this. A chapel built in the North Pole really pictures this. It was built in February 1959 by a group called Operation Deep Freeze 4. And when they built the structure, they they put an altar in it. And over an altar, they, they hung a picture of Jesus, a crucifix, a star of David, and a lotus leaf, which represents Buddha. And on the wall of the chapel, there was an inscription, an inscription, which read this. Now it can be said that the earth turns on the point of faith. Meaning it doesn't matter who you place your faith in. As long as you put your faith in something, it's all going to work out okay in the end. That, that, that's not what scripture teaches. That's not what the apostle Peter preached. That isn't what Jesus preached in John 14, 6. It says, I am the way, the truth, the life. All of his Claims, they're exclusive. And that's what we need to preach and pray for others as well. Let me close our time with these points to ponder this week. Think this week about how quickly persecution came into the early church. Like I said, it's only been a couple weeks. And they're already being persecuted from all sides by, honestly, the bigwigs of this day. Does Christ's church in America suffer any persecution? If so, how? If not, why? Number two, think this week about how Christ placed Peter and John in jail, which was the best spot, perhaps the only spot, for them to be a witness to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders. What special spot has God placed you in to be a witness for him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word how even though it was written so long ago and and, and we're looking at at men that lived 2,000 years ago, Lord, it is so applicable for us today. We thank you that your word is alive and active. And we pray that you would allow us to have your word do its special work in our lives. That you would allow us to, to be your witnesses as Peter was. That wherever you have us, Lord, that we would point others to you. Go before us for it's in the precious name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us today. 
It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord, and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.